you're latte worshiping like me with a coffee in your hand, uh, make your way in as soon as possible, but the rest of us is time to start. Did you get it, Heinrich? Just push it once. Did you push the two? Push the, let me see it, bring it up here. So we're about to live stream. Are you excited? Yes. Yes. So you can become Billy Graham. Hit those two, hit that. So boom, so we're gonna hit both of those. So make sure that's green, that's green, and then hit go live. And in the bottom button will turn red, bottom left, when it stops spinning. So we're doing the, um, the life of David, and we've been going through the life of David. If you have any issues, just bring it up to me and we'll just work it out from there. So you can become Billy Graham with a click of a button. You go on to Elevate Miami Church Facebook and you can share the feed on your wall. You literally reach out to your whole Facebook page that way. So we're testing the, we're in beta mode here. We're testing the, the product. So we're trying to see how this all works and how we can better use it. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing today is we're talking about the life of David. And a lot of people know David as this highly successful and he's kind of like an icon within the scripture. And, and he was, he did a lot of great things. And the Lord really celebrates the triumphs of David's life. Jerusalem is called the city of David. The, star, the Israeli flag is called the Star of David. Jesus is called the Son of David. So there's a lot of successful things that David did. But uh, the one thing about the scripture is it never shines a person's life. It doesn't just show all the, all the good. And that's how you know that God is involved here. So God brings even out the mistakes of David's life and allows us to look at them. And the purpose of him doing that is so that we, in future generations, can learn from him. And so David's life is about to go over the cliff. It went over the cliff a couple of chapters ago, and he's about to experience a downward spiral. And the downward spiral of David's life resulted, it was a result of three self-engrossed decisions. David made some decisions based upon his own desires, his own lust, the Bible says. And so if you want to know what lust means, it simply means selfish desire. So lust is not always, and this just to translate this for you correctly, it's not always a sexual thing. It can be, but it's not always. Lust means selfish desire. And lust comes from this idea, I see it, I want it, I take it. That's what, that's what it means. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I see that, I want that, I take that. And that's exactly what David did with Bathsheba. He saw her, he wanted her, and he took her, right? So that's kind of how we ended up at this place. So he has three bad decisions. He had adultery with Bathsheba. Then after that, Bathsheba was married. So he decides he's going to murder her husband, another bad move. And then lastly, for two years, he kind of hid it and he kind of suppressed it. And a lot of us are two people. Anybody, would you agree? No one wants to agree with that. A lot of us, you know, we, we feel like when, we're, when we're, we're, we're Christians and we're in the spirit, and then we're this other person when we're not in the spirit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Bible uses it this way. Paul says, I drag around with me a body of death. For that which I will to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. I have this body of death. I have this second side of me, this abiding presence with me that I just can't seem to get rid of no matter how hard I try. It says, who will deliver me from this body of death? It says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. 
And so the idea is, is like, and you'll notice this about yourself if you become a worshiper, and as you begin to worship and you begin to honor God in worship, you begin to, the, the Spirit of God comes over you or begins to manifest within you, and you feel the presence of God all around you, and you're a different person, aren't you? When you're in the Spirit, you're entirely different. You're loving, you're kind, you're gracious, you're friendly. Even you like you when you're in the Spirit. And then when you're not in the Spirit, you know, like those Monday mornings, or sometimes, you know, usually it carries over a little bit. Let's go with Wednesday. Usually around Wednesday, you know, when the glory is all evaporated off of you, then it all kind of comes out and you're back to normal. And then you wonder a lot of times, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Why do I act this way? I'm a hypocrite. I act this way and then I don't act this way. The difference is this. You're, it's it, hypocrisy, whatever it may be. But the issue is, is that it's you in the Spirit and it's you out of the Spirit. And the key point, and I emphasize this a lot, is that who you are in the Spirit is your eternal you. You're going to be that person forever. That is the born-again Millie. That is the born-again John. That is the born-again Kevin. That is who I am forever, is that person. Who I'm out of the Spirit, that's my old life. And what you need to understand is that when you come to Christ, God no longer sees you in light of your old life. He, does, he doesn't even recognize you as that person. He only sees you as the new you. So that's, that's an important thing to understand. And so one of the easiest problems is the Bible gives us solutions. Now the solutions that the Bible gives us are, are easy to understand, but they're difficult to apply. And so it'll say to us, walk in the Spirit as He is in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the selfish desires of the flesh. In other words, if you're having a lot of internal problems and a lot of issues, and you're just dysfunctional all over the place, as most of us are, it gives a solution, get in the Spirit. And so we're supposed to get in the Spirit. Well, again, that's a simple concept, but it's not always easy to apply. I don't know if you're like me. You know you need to get in the Spirit. And these, I have these days. I'm like, I know the Lord's calling me into the Spirit. I know I'm out of, I'm, now I'm out of, I know I'm called to get in the Spirit. And I'm like, but I don't want to get in the Spirit. I don't want to get in the Spirit. I don't feel like getting in the Spirit right now. That's not where I want to go. And so it's easy to understand, and it's very difficult. Then when you actually do get in the Spirit, you're like, what was my problem? Why didn't I get over here before? Everything's cool over here. But we, you know, a lot of times it's hard. It's like coming to church. It's another thing. You're coming into the spirit. I don't want to go to church. I'm not going to go to church today. No, I need to go to church. Whatever it is. <laughs> you need to read your Bible. I'm not going to read my Bible. You need to pray. Not going to pray. I won't pray. You know, we're resistant to spiritual things, and those are the very things that end up benefiting us. Then when you read your Bible, you're like, why didn't I read my Bible earlier? Then when you pray, you're like, why didn't I pray earlier? And what you need to realize is that old guy, that old woman, that's a zombie. You want to be a zombie killer? That's the, per that's the first dead person you need to kill, is the one that resists you. One person, one guy taught me a long time ago, many, many moons ago, he said, it's a traitor. You have to begin to recognize the traitor within yourself, and you need to execute the traitor every time you see him. The traitor is that, that, that part of you is the person that wants to betray you all of the time. It's the treacherous nature. That, that's the body of sin. But we in the spirit, we are new in Christ. So there's this duality that we live with. But as the believer, you have power over the flesh. We teach in churches that we need to exercise dominion over the flesh. And so we're just constantly beating ourselves down. And we're, we're, we're trying to control the flesh with external means. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. We're trying, and that's good. 
So don't put yourself in an environment that is going to, that if you have a weakness there, you shouldn't put yourself in an environment like that. So yeah, there should be some external controls. But at the end of the day, the external control is not the solution. The external control will never be the solution. The Spirit of God is our solution. That is, He is the remedy. So the Holy Spirit is the remedy, and we have to learn how to do that, and we have to practice the presence, and that looks like a lot of things. In the Old Testament, there was something called the law of sin and death. So David does three really crazy things. He guilty with Bathsheba, murders Uriah, goes off on a two-year cover-up. This is an important, this is, everybody say, we're about to get into theology. That's right. Some of you are like, yay. Others of you are like, what the heck is theology? Theology is simply theos, it's the study of God. That's really what it means. And so theology is the study of God. And we study God through his word. One of the ways we study God through his word is by understanding the defining points within the scripture. The cross and the resurrection is the defining moment of all time. There is no greater defining moment than the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Those three events are everything. That's what changes the world. It doesn't just change the re- world, it changes reality itself. And the economy of, of the system shifts. The power of the shift system shifts. In the Old Testament economy, when you sinned, there was something, a universal law called the law of sin and death. It existed. And there was no atonement for it. So when you sinned, as David sinned, he set in, co- he set in motion a course of actions. He set in motion a a course of consequences that he was absolutely powerless to prevent. He couldn't stop it because the law demanded payment and the law and sin demanded payment. Okay, so that was the Old Testament. There was nothing there that he. So when David did these actions, he brought upon himself spiritual consequences, emotional consequences, physical consequences and relational consequences. And there was no way out of it. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. You understand that? So in the New Testament, the power of Jesus, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ becomes a universal payment that needs to be accessed. And when we access that universal payment, it just doesn't happen by default. So the blood of Christ is a universal atonement that gives us and and, and breaks off of us the law of sin and death. For instance, David, because David did these things, he now was bound to the penalty of the law. It wasn't as though God's up there going, well, I need to judge you for that. God had established a law, and his law was his righteousness, his standard, and if this is what, there needed to be a consequence to David's action. And God could not look to, so like with you sin, and you, the, you, you repent and you say, Lord, forgive me, the Lord will look to, the, the Father will look to the Son and he will accept the atoning sacrifice and therefore can nullify the law of sin and death. In the Old Testament economy, there was no nullification for the law of sin and death. So when you made an action, there was going to be a consequence. Whether God wanted to do it, or whether, whether the Father wanted to do it, or whether he didn't, it was required. It was how he aligned it. And one of the things that the devil does when you sin is he likes to hold up a card. He claims right over disobedience. He claims right not only over the sinner, but he claims right over the sins of the believer, and he holds it up. And that's why the Bible says he's ever accusing you before the Father. Well, what is he accusing you on? He's not accusing you on the basis of his own ideas. He's accusing you on the basis of the word. He holds the word up and says, ah, right here, the devil's a legalist. 
David committed adultery and David murdered the husband. That's what he did. He held that up and he's requiring a payment to be made and he couldn't look to Jesus. That's why the Bible says devil accuses us before the father and Jesus ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Satan desires to sift you as wheat, Peter. Fear not, I've prayed for you. I'm interceding for you. I am the advocate. I am the atoning sacrifice that covers you. This is important to understand. In the New Testament, that, that, the law of the Spirit is accessed through repentance. So in other words, when you sin, so let's just put it in the context of an unbeliever. If someone is in the world today and they have never committed their life to Christ, so let's define salvation for you. This is a very clear point. Salvation is not, Jesus is my buddy, he's the big man upstairs. I believe that Jesus is Lord. That does not even equate salvation. Conversion is based on the, on the principle of surrender. You must surrender your life to him and receive his life in exchange. That's where, that's, that is the foundation of, cons, of, of, of conversion. God doesn't accept the fact that you came to church as a point of conversion. We come to church because we are converted. We come to church because we are in Christ. This is not what saves us. And it's not what saves you, just a belief. You believe, you do well, for even the demons in hell believe, the scripture tells us. It's not an issue of cognitive belief, right? That's not, that does not, it's not what saves a person. What saves a person is a repent, is a surrendered life. Man left God. This is the principle of salvation. We left him. We offended God. And what it means, what offend means is to push away. It's this word harmatano. So harmatano means to push away. So when Adam sinned, he pushed God away. Literally, he pushed himself away. He fell. He left God. Now in order for man to become saved, he must return to God. And man said, I'm Lord. You're not. So he pushed God away. And now in order to come back, we have to acknowledge Jesus as what? Lord. We have to surrender the lordship of our life. Anything short of that is not salvation. You're not saved. You're intellectually convinced, but you're spiritually unconverted. There's a lot of people that are intellectually convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they're spiritually unconverted. And then there's a lot of people who just don't understand anything, and they're not intellectually convinced of anything, but they believe that, they believe that if they give their life to Christ, they'll be saved. And these are people like, they're born again, and if you ask them to give them anything, they'll be like, I don't, have, I don't know how it works, but I just know I'm saved. That's all I know. <laughs> And there's lots of people that are that way. They're converted. The one that can articulate doctrine but has never surrendered his heart and still sits upon the throne of their own heart and is willing and doing as they please, never surrendering or yielding to the Spirit of God, they're not converted. The law of sin and death abides upon that person. Our ancestor, Adam, who is the father of us all, by the way, apart from Christ, now we have, it's called a federal head. So G, Adam was created as the federal head. That's just, this is a theological term. He is the federal head of all of mankind. So if you have a river, a river has a head, doesn't it? So rivers usually begin with a spring of water, correct? Right, I went to the head of the St. John's River in Florida, and there's this huge spring that's just bursting up water. That's the federal head of that river. That's where the river begins, right? So Adam is the river that begins all of mankind. Our ancestor, Adam, sinned, and in his sin came under the law of sin and death. Separated from God, that's part of the penalties, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and ultimately eternally. So that, that, was, that was the sin that we inherited. We inherited that from, from our federal head. The only way we get away from that is by accepting a new federal head. Bible says that Jesus came as the last Adam. And so we move away 
from the first Adam, and we, give, we take away that ancestry, and we give our ancestry, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of it, unto him, and we become born again. Does this make sense to you? Jesus came as the last Adam. He now becomes the heir of ourselves. We now are following in his line. We inherit from him. Instead of inheriting from Adam, we inherit now from Christ. And instead of inheriting Adam's sin, we inherit Jesus' righteousness. That's, that's what it means to be saved. This is why when somebody gives their life, they're under the law of sin and death. They go, I'm going all in with Jesus. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. I don't understand it, but I'm going to go for it. And they just surrender. And then the power of sin and death is lifted off their life, and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus comes into them, and they're illuminated for the very first time. What just happened? Why did that happen? It happened because the law of sin and death was removed, and the law of life in Christ Jesus was activated through repentance. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is activated in the life of the believer and in the life of mankind only through an act of repentance. It's like an inheritance that's waiting there that you have to access. It's like having a refrigerator full of food and being starving, and you're sitting on a couch wishing that the bologna sandwich would come and fall into your hands. You have to get up and appropriate the provision. Jesus has made provision. You have to appropriate the provision. He's died for the whole world, but the whole world is not saved, nor will the whole world be saved. The majority of the world will be lost and end up in a, in a, in a hell eternity, in a fiery eternity. That is an inconvenient truth. The environment is not the inconvenient truth, Al Gore. <laughs> Mankind dying without Christ is the inconvenient truth. There's nothing worse than that. And that is the facts. And the reason is, is that most people will never come to the place where they are willing to surrender their lives to Christ. We have a nation bombarded with the gospel bombarded with the gospel day in day out tv radio internet bombarding this nation with the gospel the amount of gospel that's released in this country the vast majority of the country should be saved but unfortunately that's not the case why people can blame a lot of people why they end up in hell but you're not going to blame jesus you will not blame him he's done everything in his power the problem with people is they will not surrender and submit their pride it's pride of heart it's arrogance. It's an unwillingness to humble themselves and acknowledge sin, righteousness, Christ is righteousness, an unwillingness to escape what is already foretold. Most people don't know they're under the law of sin and death. They think their own righteousness is going to save you. Good luck. Good luck. You lose, you lose it all. Your righteousness, your works do not save you, nor will they ever save you. There is nothing you can do to possibly erase the law of sin and death. Only the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is, has the power to set us free. And the power of life in Christ Jesus is activated through and only through repentance. And repentance needs to be understood for what it is. Repentance means to return. This is the sum total of all what repentance is. It is return. I was in Bible school many years ago. I was pastor teaching, uh, you know, and all the dogmas and all the doctrines, all this stuff. And metanoia, 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 which is the Greek word for repentance. And it means change your mind. That's where we get the word penthouse. Go up high and see things differently. Repent. That metanoia word. It comes from that. In the Hebrew, it's called teshuva. Different understanding. So we return and we see things differently. If you want to know what repentance is, we return to Jesus. We return our lives to Jesus. We return our sin to Jesus. We return our attitudes to Jesus. We return our lifestyles to Jesus. We return every part of our life to Jesus. And we go a different way. We begin to see things from his world. That's what repentance is. 
And what we do is we pound it. And the church is a little misguided on this because we pound out repentance as metanoia. And what we teach you, and I don't teach you this, but what's taught to the body of Christ is that if you'll just, just you need to just think differently. And if you'll think differently, your behavior will come out different. Well, I spent a large portion of my life trying to do that. And I can say with good authority, it doesn't work. <laughs> no amount of external controls can change my life. I have to deal with these issues internally. Metanoia is, return, is, is seeing things differently, but you cannot have metanoia, which is Greek for repentance, without teshuva. You cannot see things differently without returning. It's just the way it is. Two issues of sin, harmatano, harmatia, same root word, different meanings. So sin in the Bible has the same root word. Here again is a lot of confusion. We cross-pollinate this word. Harimatano means to offend. Harimatia means to miss the mark. And which one have you heard preached most of your life? Anybody who's been in church for any long time, which one have you heard? Miss the mark. That's the, we, we just go off on missing the mark. And we don't understand harmatano means to offend. And what offend means is to push, push away. It actually is used by, by Homer. It is actually used by uh, all of the Greek philosophers use the word harmatano in relationship to a hero who fell. So when they, every time they would use the word harimatano, it was always couched in this understanding there was a hero who had all of this potential, but he lost it. And then you can understand that if you realize that that's how they, the ancients understood it, you can understand that was man's position created to be heroic. But pushing away from his identity, pushing away from his source, pushing away from everything he was created to be, he fell, and, lost, and she fell, and lost all of their potential. And now how our matano means we pushed away. So if we push God away, it gives you an understanding of what teshuva means. If I shove you away, I now have to come back to you, don't I? Do you see how these words interact? Do you see how the, 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 the plan of God kind of relates? We pushed God away. And what we think is we shoved God. Really what it is is when Adam shoved God, he fell. The Lord didn't move. <laughs> it's like standing here and you, you push me and you fall off the platform. I didn't move, you fell, right? Even though I pushed you away, I was the one who fell. The Lord never pushed Adam away. It's important to know that. The Lord began to pursue Adam the moment he left. What did he do? He just showed up in the garden. Adam, Adam, where are you? Didn't he? Didn't he? He, he didn't go pick up a cell phone, Adam, and call me. I'm not coming around you anymore. He immediately pursued Adam and immediately sought restoration with Adam. The Lord shed the blood, so you know. Adam covered himself with fig leaves. Adam and Eve running around with fig leaves. We didn't come out, Lord, because we're naked. Who told you that? It's the root. Lies. Who told you you were naked? What voice have you been listening to beyond my own that has left you into this place? This is a problem. Epidemic. This is destiny right here. You begin to listen to voices that are not your father's, and it leads us into the bushes. It leads you into fig trees. Who have you listened to that's not me? That's what he asks. Who told you you were naked? I never told you you were naked. Yeah. Wow. And so God took the animal, and he slayed it. He shed the blood. He took the skin, and he made the covering. And what is he saying to Adam? Your covering for this is not sufficient. There is nothing you can do to take this away. I can, 
by what is acceptable to me. And so God created a plan to where he would accept temporary sacrifices, of temporary blood sacrifices, until the time when the true sacrifice came and gave his blood. And so there was animal sacrifices all the way up until the, until the, until the time of Christ. And it was a temporary, pr- pr- temporary provision until the true Lamb of God came and shed his blood, and then blood sacrifices were no longer necessary. But only blood sacrifices of animals were required. You say, it's not fair. What did that animal do? He didn't do anything. And that's the point. The point of emphasis is sin costs. Sin is going to cost. It didn't cost you anything, but it's going to cost the life of someone innocent. Jesus didn't do anything. Our sin costs him's life. That's the point. So we have harmatano, harmatia. Harmatia means to miss the mark. We make all these decisions. So David committed a sin that did not condemn him to hell. Do you understand this? This is important. This, will, this is because of the theology within our churches. We think if we sin, we've got to come to the altar and repent 50 times and get saved again. You might come to the altar and repent. That's fine. But you don't need to get saved again. If you've already been washed, Jesus told Peter, you don't need to be cleansed again. You only need your feet washed. That's what he told him. You're already clean, Peter. He said, you're just, you're just walking in some stuff. Your feet are dirty from where you've been walking. That's your issue. It wasn't harmatano. It was harmatia. And so Peter... Uh, David commits a sin that's harmatia. It is a sin, multiples of them, that moved him away or was not in line with his destiny. It was not in line with his purpose. David's destiny was to rule Israel. David's destiny was to bring the glory of God into the nation. David's destiny was to reflect the light of God unto all peoples. That was David's destiny. Well, how many know that those choices do not align with that destiny? (laughs) Taking another man's wife you know, murdering her husband and then lying about it for two years. None of those choices are in line with that destiny. In fact, God told him, he said, because you did this, the Gentiles blaspheme me. They profane me. They mock me because of you, because I set you in a position to reflect my glory and you've done quite the opposite, right? So that was kind of what was going on here. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he gives him a parable. And he tells David, he said, a traveler came to a rich man. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man had a traveler come to him. That word traveler, it's interesting, can be translated as acquaintance. It can also be translated as a flow. You see, David had an issue in his life, and his issue was women. That's right. David had an issue in his life, and his issue was women. David had insufficiencies within himself. David was rejected by his father. Never nur- his mother wasn't in the picture, so he never, knew, he never knew a right relationship as a man because it was never mirrored to him as a father. He never had a mother, so he was never nurtured in the proper way and never taught to bond with a woman in the correct way. And so what he did was that hunger and that need within his life, he began to sexualize all of his experiences with women. He couldn't have a relationship with a woman without sexualizing it. Because it was a hunger and a need within himself that was damaged that had been done to him. It's just truth. And so David, and the Bible says a traveler, a visitor, a flow, an acquaintance. David had his familiarity, which was lust, sexual desire. And so this visitation, so the prophet's going, this familiar thing came to him. Came to him and instead of feeding the familiar desire, so David hungered for sex or a relationship, he couldn't emotionally bond. And because of his inability to emotionally bond, that again leads to sexualization. He didn't have the tools to emotionally bond with a woman. That's why he went from woman to woman to woman to woman to woman. Because he never developed the tools that enabled him to bond with a woman. Fear, insecurity, you know. And you might say, well, she was the problem. Well, he had eight wives. 
Somewhere along the line, it's not all eight of them. You understand? Maybe one or two of them, they had some issues too, so that broke down the relationship. But I guarantee you, out of eight, come on, bro. Seriously? The issue's with him. And so he had an inability within himself. And so the Bible tells us that this straveler, this, this familiar thing came to him, this flow that he recognized, and he knew, oh, yeah, scratching himself in his Versace robe, going out on a porch in the middle of the day. Oh, yeah, who's that? Familiar to him. And David gives him, and Nathan gives him a story. Nathan says, instead of feeding that from his own house, he went to the poor man and stole from the poor man in order to feed that which was of him. You understand? David had plenty of wives. He had plenty of players. He had, he had, he had a house full of women, right? I mean, seriously. He had, all he had to do was go, hey, anybody want to have sex with me tonight? I'm telling you, they would line up. The women would line up because they wanted to, that's how they gained favor with the king. So if it was an issue of sex, okay, let's just get real. All he had to do was get all the women in the room, and some of them would go, I'm not, you haven't talked to me in two months, I'm not going with you. I guarantee you, one out of eight would have been me. You understand what I'm saying? This is my point. He had plenty of resources within his home. I'm not advocating eight wives, neither does the Bible. The Bible actually condemns it. And it's one of the reasons David had so much turmoil in his life was because he didn't obey the Lord. And he multiplied his wives. The Lord directly told him, don't multiply wives. And it was a standard over all of Israel and over all the kings. And Israel didn't multiply wives, only unless they couldn't bear children. Then they were allowed to take a second wife. That's the only reason the Bible allowed it, is if the first wife couldn't bear a child. And they took a second wife in order to bear a child. That's the only reason. They were never allowed, nor was there anything within their culture where they were allowed polygamy. And God didn't, and, but the kings felt like they were entitled. Well, I'm a king. I'm completely entitled to all this. And so David's sense of entitlement, this is all kind of how, how it ended up there. But what Nathan's telling him, David, you had the ability to do this within your own home. You didn't need to go outside of your own home. This is what the Bible tells us, men, drink water from your own vessel. Crickets. Drink water from your own vessel. Delight in the wife of your youth. Choose her. She's made for that. That's why you guys have a relationship. This is part of it. Oh, well, we don't get along, and there's all this other stuff. Well, there's a lot of reasons here. There's a lot of complexities to a relationship. So let me go back to the previous point. Without developing the emotional tools within the relationship, the relationship will not succeed. It just won't. The way we're designed to come together is spiritually, emotionally, and then physically. That's how we come together, in that order. That's has to be a spiritual connection, a harmony of communion of spirits. Wanting, desiring, understanding the same things. An emotional, a bond, an ability to communicate in verbal and nonverbal ways. To actually talk about subjects other than, man, baby, you are hot. I am smoldering right now and I cannot wait. I mean, we've got to agree. The relationship is doomed to fail. The sexual side is meant to bond the other two. What that is, is that's an exclusivity in that relationship. It's to me, it meant between the two people to make the relationship exclusive. It's exclusive. Between, that's what, ladies, he helped me out here. It becomes very possessive. Once we go there, the relationship gets owned. Yes. Be, yes. And why is that? Because that's the way it's designed. But it's not designed. What ends up happening is we lead it physically. And so we jump the gun, and we get out here, and we bond physically. And then there's no emotional, and there's no spiritual connection. And then the house blows up. And then all of a sudden, everybody's left in damage and hurt and want. And I gave myself to you, and I don't understand how you could treat me this way. And I was vulnerable with you. you know, and that's what you're left with. That's why the Bible tells you, don't fornicate. 
fornicated sex before marriage. It tells you not to do that because sex is made to be is made to be experienced within the context of marriage. It's nuclear power. Hank worked a nuclear power plant. They don't put plutonium out on the front lawn. They don't, do they? Not the last time I checked. They house it within specific chambers and containers. And when they house it and they manage it correctly, it lights the city. If they didn't house it and put it in the proper place, it would destroy everybody. And this is what sex is. Sex is meant to be housed within a bonded, committed relationship. So it will light a home, right? <laughs> and what happens when we put it outside the container is it radiates. It damages everything, every person, every place, everything. And it damages. And most of the time with women, it's, you're the, unfortunately, they're the ones that, you're the one that loses. That's the sad reality. So, I mean, that's why ladies, you're to guard and possess your vessel with honor, as are men. But oftentimes, we, you know, women in the desire to get love, they end up selling out sex in order to get some form of love. And where a man, he'll, he, he learns this. I, I, I shared this last week. Women are designed to give themselves to men. That's how you're designed. You're not giving yourself to that man or wanting to give yourself to that man because you're weak. You're made to. So when he sweet talks you in loving and honey and blessing and love and all that beautiful stuff, you want to you wanna go there because that's how God's made you. The burden of responsibility upon sex, God places squarely on the shoulders of the man. He is the one who's expected to say no. Crickets, well, I did it because she wanted it. Well, you know, like I hear guys, I've had guys tell me that. I want to like smack them, you know, and going with duh, dude. And what happens is, is unscrupulous, unscrupulous men understand what it means to speak to a woman and they learn how to manipulate women and they learn how to manipulate women's emotions given enough time to get what they want. And then once they get what they want, oftentimes because they're without character, they leave. And the woman's left holding the bag. It's not God's intent. So you know, men that do that, the Bible equates you or likens you to a, a, a robber who breaks into people's homes or vulnerable homes and steals something that doesn't belong to you. That's what it tells you. When you do this to women, the Lord looks at you and says, you are like a person who breaks into a home of, that's, that's weak, or, or not, I wouldn't say weak, but like vulnerable. It's kind of what it's liking it to. You're breaking into a vulnerable home and you're stealing something that doesn't belong to you. So heaven doesn't look favorably upon the ladies' man. It doesn't. God doesn't design it that way. That's one of the problems. We have so many misfortunes and so many ills within our culture and within our society is because of this. We have unwanted pregnancies and unwanted children, and we have heartache and destruction and all these other things. But we don't need the Lord, do we? Nah, we got a better idea. Jesus doesn't want me to have sex outside of marriage because he's trying to keep me from fun. No, he's trying to keep you from destruction <laughs> at best, at worst, and something itchy at best. So that's pretty much what he's trying to do. <laughs> Next slide. So David repents. He says, David goes to the prophet. The prophet tells him the story. He says, this guy fed his, his need or fed his traveler or fed his acquaintance with someone else's and he stole it from something. He stole something very valuable. And David goes, that dude's got to die and he's got to repay fourfold. Well, adultery and murder in, under the Old Testament Mosaic law, again, law of sin and death, required death. 
So the law of sin and death, for David to do that, he deserved to die. But the Lord judged him according to a lesser law. There's mercy in this story. If God was to take the height of his judgment, he would have executed David, and he would have been completely, because that was the law, that, that was the penalty that was demanded for what David did. But God judged him according to a lesser law. He judged him with that sheep. He came to him with a different, a different thing, a, 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 a different law. And so God judged him, or allowed the judgment to come to David, law of sin and death, according to a lesser law. And what does that mean? Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is not looking to enact judgment. He's not walking around with a baseball bat waiting for somebody to get out of line so he can just knock you out of the park. That's not what he's trying to do. He's actually trying to bring you into mercy. He's actually trying to, even with David, he did not give David the full penalty of what David deserved. He gave him mercy. In the New Testament, repentance and restoration activates the law of the Spirit. And we are judged according to the standards of the law, that was what David was, but we are judged according to the standards of Christ. So when you do something and you cross the line and you repent, the law, of sin, the law of sin and death is lifted off of your life and the law of life in Christ Jesus is released. That's why the Bible says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Where sin abounds, grace does. This is what Paul's relating to. The law of the Spirit through repentance enacts grace over our lives so you know what you get? What you don't deserve. Aren't you glad? David got what he deserved. He did, and there was no way he could get that off his life. No amount of repentance, and the Lord, it wasn't that the Lord wanted to give it, it was that the law demanded it, and there was no atonement for it. That's why in the New Testament, Christ's blood has been shed, and the atonement is there, but we have to appropriate it. That's why when people repent, and it seems like the judgment's lifted off their life, and all of a sudden, mercies come, and we want to point the finger and go, you know, the Lord needs to judge you for that. We already did judge me. He judged it on Christ. This is hard for us. Because in our lives, when we sin, you know what we want? What do you want? Mercy. But when somebody else sins, what do you want? Justice. Judgment. Drop the hammer on them, Lord. But when we do it, oh, Lord, mercy, mercy. Help us with mercy. <laughs> and he is merciful. And he's quick to forgive, and he's long-suffering. But he doesn't do it without you asking. You have to ask him for it. You have to repent. You must repent. It activates it. We're judged according to the life in Christ Jesus. According to that, we are judged. That's why it's merciful. He is merciful. Now, what, what does that mean? It means the spiritual consequences are removed through repentance. The emotional consequences can be restored. Not always do the relational consequences come about. Sometimes when you sin against a person, heaven may forgive you. And you may be able to get healing from it emotionally, but you may have enacted a, a chain reaction among people. And people are not always quick to forgive. <laughs> are they? That's why David said, put me in your hands, Lord. I don't want, I'd rather be judged by you than be judged by man. That's a pretty important statement. So just because there's grace over your life doesn't mean there's not physical consequences. When you repent, God relifts it off of you. He relieves the burden. You can re release the guilt, the shame, the emotional affliction goes off of you if you're willing, but that doesn't mean the, the, the physical consequences go away. You may owe somebody a debt. You may have stolen something from somebody, and you may have repented of the theft, but you now owe that person restoration. It's true. You may have hurt someone or damaged someone or inflicted a wound upon someone, and you can repent before God, and the Lord will grant you the spiritual forgiveness without that consequence. He'll even heal you of your action emotionally, but you may still owe that person a restoration. That's important to know. Just because we repent before it's, before, it's before God and before man. 
That's how our lives are to be lived. So just because you repent before God doesn't mean you, you may have to make restitution and you may have to make restoration among people. You may owe some people an apology, you may, you, among other things. And that's the same thing with you. You might have had some people wound you and sin against you, and you know, they've repented before God, but they've never restored it to you. And that's why the burden is still there. That's why you still feel it. Right? True. The person who rejects never surrendered the law of repentance. So that's what happens. This is the unbeliever. So let's go. So they, next slide. So the unbeliever is still under the law of sin and death. You say, I don't believe that. Well, when the breath leaves your body, you are going to become intimately acquainted with the reality that I just told you. You are woefully ignorant on that. If you don't believe that without Christ you're under the law of sin and death, when you pass through the veil of, eternity, from, of time into eternity, you're going to recognize that you're under the law of sin and death. And there's nothing that's going to help you. It's over. The only, li- the only hope we have is in this world, and it's through Christ Jesus. That is the only way that sin is removed. It does not get removed any other way. If you think it does, you are wishful thinking. Buddhism will not save you. Catholicism will not save you. Islam will not save you. Scientology will not save you. PhDs will not save you. Nothing will save Your works will not save you. The only one who can and will is Jesus. And that must be appropriated. Salvation is there. You've been invited, but you've got to RSVP. You don't RSVP, you're not getting in the door. You say, well, wait a minute, I know I got an invitation. I heard the pastor give an invitation several times. Yeah, you got the invitation, but you didn't RSVP. Sorry. <laughs> so what is this? So here's what I want to break down. I'm going to try to give you guys something good here. So here's what happens to the Christian whose life belongs to Jesus, and there are patterns within their lives that are without spiritual blessing, that are without emotional blessing, or without physical or relational blessing. What about that? What is the cause of that? Does it mean that God just universally forgives us in every area of our life? Could it be that there are issues spiritually because there's an area of your life that you need to repent? Could it be that there are issues emotionally because there's issues in your life that you need to repent, physically or relationally? Had a woman here, and I'll share this for you all. You've heard me share this story before, but it's a very powerful one. And I have two witnesses to the fact. We had a woman here who had lupus, and she was very bound with lupus. Lupus is an incurable disease, by the way, so you know. Okay? Well, why did she have it? I, I ended up doing inner healing with her, emotional and inner healing with her, and she walked out of, the, out of the door of the church completely healed. And Hank called me the next day, who sat with me, and said, you didn't even lay hands on her. And I'm like, I know. I only did emotional and inner healing on her, and she walked out, of the, door, out the door completely saying, well, I don't believe it. Well, you weren't there. I was. I saw it. I participated. I was going to pray for her. We were going to lay hands on her. And then she started telling me her story. And she had a lot of damage and a lot of things had happened to her and a lot of things had been done to her. I had to walk her through forgiveness. had to walk her through repentance. had to walk her through a bunch of stuff. And as we did, the bondage began to leave. And she walked free. Just because you receive Jesus, it doesn't mean there's universal blessing in every area. You have to take ownership of specific areas of your life, and you have to bring them into repentance, and you have to bring them into submission unto Jesus. It's just the issue. So here you go. Faith, family, friendship, finances, future. Those are five key areas of your life. We like five here for some reason at Elevate. It's the number of grace, so we're grace ministry. So let's just take the area of faith. I can't seem to get past certain places in my faith. I can't seem 
to grow. I feel like I'm dry. I feel whatever that argument is. Why is that? Well, what I can tell you is it's not the Lord afflicting you. Jesus isn't doing anything to hold you back. The Lord never holds anyone back. What I would tell you, and almost 100% certain, somewhere in there is a lie. You're believing a lie, among many things, but you may be believing a lie. You may be believing that you're not worthy. You may be believing that God isn't good. You may be believing that God doesn't love you. You may be believing, uh, an, you may be holding an identity that someone else gave you that he didn't. Somewhere along in there, you may believe that you have a better idea than Jesus does, and most oftentimes, Christians want the Lord on, his, on their agenda rather than being on the Lord's agenda. And that's a big problem. Lord, this is what I want. Get down here and bless it. Crickets. Nothing happens. You get on his agenda and you submit it unto him and let him lead you. You partner with him and bring it about. Other areas of life, family. Lord, why is my household an explosion? What's up in the air here? And he may tell you there's some things that are unreconciled. You've sinned against your children and you need to apologize. Where have I sinned against my children? Your anger, your this, your discontent, your unwillingness to affirm. Somewhere in there, he's going to tell you. You know, he's going to tell you. Why is my family blowing up? It may be an issue with you. It may be an issue of sinful people. It may be something generational. But if you begin to look at it, it's not God's will that your household explode. Okay, so if it's God's will for your household to explode, that's not heaven's idea, then we need to know why. And if the devil has a right, the devil does nothing but by right. And how do you know it's a right? Because it keeps happening again and again and again and again. An attack is it comes and it goes. And then you don't see it again. That, that's an attack. An oppression, and then it lifts and it's gone and it's never, you've never, oh yeah, that was like seven years ago. I don't, you know. what, what, an, what a right is, is when it occurs again and again and again and again. And you see it as a pattern, consistently. He's got a key to your house, ladies and gentlemen. He has a right. You might have opened the door for him. Or your ancestor may have given him a key. Somewhere along the line, that devil's got something. And I've got news for you. He's not going to tell you what he has, nor is he going to tell you why he has it. The only one that's going to tell you what he has, and the only one that's going to tell you why he has it, is the Holy Spirit. And until you get into a relationship with the Holy Spirit and begin to trust him, nothing's changing. It's communion with him. What's the devil got on me? I don't know. And we can all sit around and guess and, you know, and do our calculations. And if we begin to ask the Holy Spirit, what's the deal here? You have to recognize patterns in your life. You have to recognize it. What is the pattern? Why do I do the things that I do? I was just talking to somebody before service. I said, I, and I teach you guys this. The first thing the Lord's going to do is offend you. Not all the time, but usually. If you haven't been with him in a while, he's going to probably offend you. Or if you've never really communed with him, he may nurture you forward. But a lot of times in my life, there's been nurturing, but most of the time it's offending me. And you know why he offends you? Because he's a rock of offense, number one, people. Jesus would never offend you. You do not know him. I'm like, do you seriously want to tell me he was not going to offend you? You'll go and go, Lord, what's the issue with my life? What, why is my family blowing up? And he'll go, because you're arrogant. And crickets. And then I go in the corner and suck my thumb. Jesus said I'm arrogant. No, 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 no. That's not what you're supposed to do. Where am I arrogant? Why am I? His, his uh, offense to you is to cause you or to provoke you to humility. That's the goal. And if you won't humble, he'll just keep right on going. And you'll spend the rest, you'll spend 10 years trying to figure out why I'm arrogant. Why am I arrogant? Well, I'm guessing, guessing, guessing. The Lord said I'm arrogant. I've got to find where the arrogance is. 
Well, if the arrogance is there, ask the Holy Spirit. He'll show you. You're arrogant. Then you go, why am I arrogant? You're arrogant because you're insecure. What? I'm insecure. Yep, you feel like you have to defend yourself. You feel like you don't have a voice. You feel like you, you have to fight for the right to be heard. You don't believe you. you have the, I tell you the stuff he's told me. You have the sin of unbelief. And here's the deal. So here's where I come from. I come from pious, Christian, arrogant cows. I'm serious. And you know what they produce? Pious, Christian, arrogant cows. That's what they produce. Everything produces after its own kind. So you stick around here, this is what you're going to be. You're going to be like this. Because everything produces after its own kind. And you sit under that type of teaching, and you're going to be just like that. Just like it. Magnanimous, religious, posturous, judgmental, having all the right answers but couldn't care less, all full of knowledge but never coming to truth, never coming to reality. And so if I was to say something as vulnerable as I'm about to say to you, they would judge me for it. Oh, they wouldn't judge me. They would judge me in terms of weakness. They'd go, ha, look how weak Kevin is. <laughs> the Lord has to tell him that he has a sin of unbelief. I have never had a sin of unbelief. Arrogant, posturing, religious cows. True. No effect, no glory, endless, self-righteous, arrogant, posturous, religious congregations of cows. Judgmental finger pointers and arrogant. Not understanding the reality of relationship and the intimacy and the vulnerability that is required for relationship with Jesus. The vulnerability that he brings to you is painful. If you think it's just, oh, I'm just so vulnerable with Jesus and you're just floating around on butterflies, again, I will tell you, you don't know him. He will cut you and cut you deeply. He will circumcise your flesh at every opportunity. My son, my grandson just got circumcised. It's not pretty. And it's not painful. Or it's not, not painful. He's a baby. But you can look at it and go, ha-ha. <laughs> it it's, not, it's not fun. If you want to if you, if you stay where you are, the Lord will never challenge you. This is what you need to know. If you like where you are, He will never challenge you you ever if you do not engage him he will leave you just as you are if you will not respond and i didn't say he's not he's going to try to provoke you further but if you don't respond to his provoking or his summons or his call he will leave you the same he will leave you the same and you will die in the wilderness just like the children of israel going around a mountain going in circles wondering why your life keeps going in circles why am i going in circles duh because you don't respond to him. And then when you respond to him and you say, Lord, I want to go to another level. This is what I want. This is the place I want to go to. And he, and, he, and he begins, and he'll begin to do it. But what we want to do, and then I'll ask him. So the question is, Lord, I want to go to another level. Great, Kevin, let's go to another level. So then I'll start going to another level, and I'll start going, ting. And I'll get back up, and I'll go again, and I'll go, ting. And I can't go forward. And I'll go, Lord, why can't I go forward? I told him I wanted to go to another level, and he goes, let's go. Let's go. And he tells me to run right into a wall. Jesus wouldn't do that. You don't know him. Because he's trying to show you where your limitations are. And then when you keep hitting limitations, what we do is we self-condemn. We partner with the devil. Oh, I must not be a good Christian. Oh, I don't love, you know, I'm his, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, it wouldn't, you know. You're hitting a wall. Your question is, Lord, why do I keep hitting the wall? I'm telling you how this works. If you, you know, there's probably 6% of you in the room that will actually get it. 94% will just go right over their head. 
And there's probably another percentage of you that will look at me and go, oh, look at that pastor. You know, oh, I'm, I've been a Christian. I've, you know, oh, I've got it all locked down. Yeah, good luck. I, w- I want you to say that out loud so that heaven sees or heaven hears. And when heaven hears that, you're going to see that God's going to challenge you on that. So anytime you think you got it all together, I want you to say it out loud. Lord, I got it all together. Boom. Please do. Do us all a favor, including yourself, and say that out loud. <laughs> it's true. And so I'll go, Lord, why can't I get to another level? Why can't I get past this point? And he'll say, you have the sin of unbelief. This is my story. This is, I have a couple of them more recent than this, but this was one of my most recent ones over the last probably two years. I feel like he told me you have the sin of unbelief. I'm a pastor. I preach the gospel. I mean, like, I, everything we do is by faith. This church exists by faith. I mean, I jump out of airplanes without a parachute. We just started the school, which we signed the lease on the school, by the way. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, on Friday. And what are we doing? We're jumping out of the airplane without a parachute. Woo! What are we going to do, Pastor? I don't know. How's this going to work out? Not sure about that either. I have confidence in the Holy Spirit to grant the wisdom to open the doors and to supply the strength and the resources necessary to accomplish what he sets forth. So when I look at my life and go, where, am I, where, do, I not have un, where do I have unbelief? So he's challenging me on a point where I feel like I'm pretty strong. You're challenging me on unbelief? You've got to be kidding me. Really? Unbelief? Me? Come on. And I'm like, okay, Lord, where's my unbelief? He said, if you really believed what I have spoken over your life and what I have called you to, you would be living entirely differently than you are. You don't believe that what I said to you is going to come to pass. If you believed it, you would live towards it and stop messing around with all this stupid stuff and stop making up excuses as to why you don't do what I told you to do. You have the sin of unbelief. Okay, didn't see it quite that way. That's a different revelation. That's a different insight. And you know what I began to do? Shave it all off. Show me where you don't want me. Pushing me forward. Pushing me in. We're live streaming. Do you think I want to live stream? This isn't my MO. I'm not an egotist. I don't need my face on, a, on an 8x11 glossy. I don't need to sign autographs at the door. I don't, it's not what I want. This is, this, to me, I do it because it's the gospel. I do it because it's the kingdom. And how did I get to this point? Because I just spent about two years of the Lord beating me and getting me. And you know what else he tells me? Ready for this? Okay, you guys want some more? You want me to to help you? You're going to feel really good. You're going to go, wow, I feel better. Pastor just shared all his junk with me today. So he tells me, he tells me, not only do I have the sin of unbelief, then I start pressing in and pulling towards the faith that is required for me to do what I know he's already told me, and I come up against something else. And I asked the Lord, ready? I was like, what am I, what, what's the problem now? And he says, you have the fear of man. The fear of man? You have got to be kidding me, the fear of man. Are you nuts? I don't have the fear of man. Look at my life. I don't have the fear of man. And then he shows me I have the fear of man. You have the fear of man. And so I've had to beat myself into submission. I'm telling you how it works. You all can, you know, we can all get together and hold hands and feel good about it together. But, you know, if you think you're excluded from this, you're not. This is the process of the kingdom. This is how he makes you who you are. You become insanely vulnerable. And he takes you to deep places within yourself. If you go there, you don't have to go there. Most won't. Most won't. But if you want to go there, he'll take you there. And he'll show you. And do you know why I want to go there? Because I got one at bat. 
I got one shot in this life. And I'm going to stand before him. And I want to have something to offer him. And I don't want to stand there like a coward. I want to come before him with honor and say, Lord, I gave it all. I, did, I gave it all. It's true. And so I, I, I will submit myself. I will beat my body into subjection, as Paul would say, because I'm moving towards the calling that he's given me. This is what I want. I'm not sitting here putting, again, I don't want a badge. I'm trying to make myself vulnerable to you so that you can have confidence in working with the Lord in these same ways, knowing that he is working in your life. But you have to engage him. You have to want what he is offering. Do you want to go to another level? Tell him. And he'll give you, I'm going to tell you right now, he'll give you a direction. And as soon as you start moving in that direction, you're going to come up against barriers. And some of those barriers you will overcome with wisdom. Some of those barriers you will overcome with community. You know, there will be different barriers. He'll give you different ways of overcoming the barriers. But some of these barriers you will not come up against. You will not be able to get around them. And you're going to be forced to ask him why. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to point right at you. He's going to go, here it is, Kevin. It's right here. <laughs> you have to look for patterns in your life that don't line up with heaven. If there's been poverty in your life for several generations, it's generational. I was sharing with you guys before, last service, I told him, I said, I was sharing with the pastor, and the guy said, let's not call it generational sin. Let's call it modeled, learned behavior. That's what the dude tells me. I'm like, what? Actually, I started talking to the Lord about it. I'm like, modeled, learned behavior? I'm trying to hear what he says, yeah? And I hear the Lord say to me, carnal knowledge and carnal words. Not my language, not my attitude. That's right. Carnal language and carnal words being spoken by spiritually superior people. Let's not call it as if generational sin is too primitive for you. Yeah, let's go to the level of intellect. It's modeled learned behavior. I'm sorry, this has been going on for eight generations. I'm going with generational sin. That's what I'm going with. Modeled learned behavior. What nonsense. If there's patterns of this in your life, it could be the result of something ancestral. You have, to, you have to repent. Every area of your life must come into repentance. Attitudes, actions, lies you believe, and ancestral sins. Some of you believe lies. You say, why do I have to repent of a lie? Because you made an agreement with it. I practice repentance as a lifestyle. I encourage you to do so. I don't have fear of repentance, and I don't walk under guilt and shame with repentance. I repent of my stupidity. I tell the Lord, I repent for everything I have not known. And I repent for the inability to see. I'm asking you now. I'm giving that, my inability to you. And I'm asking you to provide me with this moving forward. Give me the wisdom to ask you. Whatever it may be. I repent of all. I'm, I'm in constant repentant mode. And I renounce the lies that I believe. Repentance is, you're giving Jesus your junk. And you're taking to yourself the essence of heaven. That's what repentance is. We've made it something that it's not. And I guarantee you the devil loves it. Because the church won't repent. Or we repent under guilt and shame. But that's not the essence of what God has determined it to be. Just a thought. So sometimes there's attitude, there's actions. You believe lies. You believe you're not loved. Who told you that? If you believe for one minute at any moment in your life that Jesus doesn't love you or that, he hasn't, that you're not worthy, you need to go, Lord, I repent for the lie of believing that you don't love me. I renounce the curse that's attached to the lie that you don't love me. And I sever all cords of inheritances that have told me that you don't love me. Lies, when you agree with lies, you enact something. A lot of you believe in lies. God will never heal me. There's no hope for me. I don't know. There's, there's a thousand and one lies. Atonement must be appropriated. So you mean to, and then there's ancestral sins. Good Lord. If you go forward a few chapters here in the book of uh, 2 Samuel, David has to account for an ancestral sin. 
There's a famine in the land for three years. David goes, hey, man, there's a famine here. Anybody else notice? Oh, no, nobody noticed. Nobody noticed, right? And so he asked the Lord, he says, why is there a famine? And the Lord says that your predecessor had shed innocent blood, and that innocent blood had not been accounted for. Why was there a famine? Did David do anything to bring that famine? He didn't do anything to bring that famine. It's the same I told you, Daniel, all the time. Daniel's in bondage, and Daniel didn't do anything to be in bondage. His ancestors did it. And his ancestors he inherited the bondage of his ancestors. I was speaking with a person, and we can, we can, we can, when we approach our life, we can approach it carnally, or we can approach it spiritually. You get the opportunity to determine that. For me, my default is spirit. I'm not going to the flesh before I've gone to the spirit. I'm going to understand why this is occurring from a spiritual perspective before I go into the natural. It's just the truth. We were here with Tim Barton. He said two things. He said he noticed two things about Christians. He said they don't think critically and they don't think biblically. We don't understand. If God has promised you abundance, why isn't there any? Have you, given your, have you ever given critical thought to that? Well, God doesn't love me. That's such a cop-out and that's such a lie. You've just bought into it. Like, nowhere does it say that. I'll give you Deuteronomy 8. You've got the ability to obtain wealth. To establish it. Every single one of you has the ability to obtain wealth. It's a promise. And it's not revoked. Somebody said, that's a dispensation. That's a dispensation that was given only to the Hebrews. Where does it say that? Who told you that? Dispensationalism is a dogma created by men. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only thing that alters anything is the cross and the resurrection. The same yesterday, today, and forever. 2 Corinthians 1. All of the promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. He has not relifted one promise. Not one. If you think so, who told you that? The Bible doesn't tell you that. Deal with that verse, mighty theologian. Oh, you can't say that, Kevin. You can't claim the Deuteronomy promise of being able to prosper. In a, you, you can't claim that. Says who? Says who? Show me a verse that tells me I can't. You know what? You can't show me one because it's not there. <laughs> Whose report are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? That's the point. I believe the Bible. They hated me, man. I would slide the Bible at them. Try to give me doctrine and dogma. And Sherry would go, can't you just play nice, Kevin? Can't you just go along with what they're asking you? And I'm like, no. 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 I would challenge it and shove the Bible back at them and say, support that with Scripture. I, I'm all in on what you're telling me. If, you, if, you, if you're telling me and it's truth... It's just, but I want to know the, the, the scriptural basis by which you give me that opinion. I don't want to just make something up and just spin ribbons in the air and you tell me an opinion. I'm not interested in that. It has to be substantiated with truth. I'm giving you truth. <laughs> I'm trying, anyway. Next slide. Crazy's normal. That's what a lot of people, they never change out of the patterns because crazy's normal to them. David loses four sons. He loses the baby with Bathsheba. He loses Amnon, who rapes his sister, his stepsister, or his half-sister. He loses Absalom, and he's going to lose Adonijah. David judged himself. He said, the man will repay fourfold. David lost four sons. Law of sin and death needed a payment, and David said, this is the payment. And he, out of the words of his own mouth. The problem was that he couldn't repent because there was, again, no atonement. Law of sin and death demanded payment. Law of sin and death without Christ will always demand payment. 
law of sin and death in Christ is alleviated with the law of life in Christ Jesus spirit but you got to repent that's the key repent and restore David would not forgive himself he lived a diminished life so David does all of this and you're gonna see and we're gonna sum it up probably next week or the week after is David lived a life from this point forward of shame and guilt he lost his luster because he, he lived his life from that point forward based on that moment in time. And here's the issue. Who told you you had to live your life based in shame? Who no matter what happened, you do not have to live a diminished life. Who told you that? You can choose to if you want to, but the Lord never told him. The Bible says that the Lord forgave him and the atonement was made. And David could have went forth and ruled. And David could have go, yep, I screwed that up. That's my past, but here I am in the future, a better man. He could have lived forward, but he didn't. He, he con constantly lived a life of self-pity and shame. Poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. We all got poor me. All of us have poor me. Okay? I had some stuff happen to me. I shared you guys this before. A lot of stuff happened to me, injustices, terrible things. Had some betrayals on all kinds of levels. I had a pastor look at me, and he said, somewhere along the line, Kevin, you are going to have to regain the courage to lead. It's like, yep, that happened to you. Yep, that was wrong. Yep, lots of injustices. Yep, lots of pain. All that, everything there. But at what point are you going to regain the courage to lead? At some point. And that's what the Lord would ask you. Some of you, you've been stuck in a moment since 19, 1987. Some of you from 2012 and something really bad happened to you or you did something really stupid and you're stuck in a moment. You will not live life beyond that point. You're stuck in a moment. What the Lord would ask you is pick a day. Six months, six years, six hours. Pick a day when you're going to move past that. Pick a day. You need to determine that I'm not going to live in that moment anymore. I'm not going to live a life based upon that. It, whatever it is. David also, here's the last part, David had issues with confronting people. So David repented, but he never forgave himself. And to not forgive yourself is to put yourself in a position above the Lord. The Bible says if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart. David had no right to condemn himself. Why? Because the Lord didn't condemn him. You have no right to condemn yourself if the Lord has forgiven you. If you've asked him for forgiveness, forgiveness is granted. You have no right to condemn yourself. You have to partner now with the forgiveness that God gave you and move forward. David had dealt with issues. He had rejection, abandonment, nurturing issues. He believed lies, and he thought he was no longer worthy. His dad rejected him. He wasn't unwanted by his father. His mother wasn't in the picture, so he never saw his dad do anything, you know, model that for him. He had no mother that nurtured him. He never knew that, didn't understand that. He believed lies. He believed he wasn't accepted. He was believed he was no longer worthy to wear the crown. Who told you that? The Lord didn't tell him that. The Lord didn't go, David, you're no longer worthy to wear the crown. Submit your resignation. He never said that. He put him right back up on the throne. He failed to confront issues within himself. Okay, so confrontation is a big thing. And so the first person we need to confront if we're going to move forward is ourselves. We have to confront the issues within ourselves. And David never confronted the issues within himself. And therefore, he could not confront the issues that he had with others. He had an issue with this guy, Joab. Joab betrayed him several times. Joab was blood loyal to J David, very, very loyal. But Joab did dirty de deeds done dirt cheap. Okay? Joab was like the guy who would do all the dirty work. And, and Joab would kind of come up with his own plan. And Joab was very violent and very aggressive. But at the same time, he was very loyal to David. And jo David didn't like his lifestyle. And David didn't like the way that he handled his business. But David never confronted him. 
And so David just began to build resentment and resentment and resentment towards Joab. He never dealt with the issue. Amnon rapes David's daughter. So Amnon, they were half-brother, half-sister. David never dealt with Amnon. He raped your daughter. And David doesn't even address the issue, doesn't even talk about it, completely ignores it. He owed a debt. He had an issue there. He had an issue with Tamar. One of the things, if you read it quick, you're going to miss it. The Bible says that Tamar wore, robe, wore the royal robes of a virgin. She wore a beautiful gown that spoke culturally that she was a virgin. And she wore it proudly. She was virtuous. And so the issue is, is like I ask people, how many people would wear, would wear that today? Not a lot. He had an issue with Tamar. Tamar's virtue had been violated. David owed her at least a conversation. David at least owed her a conversation that says what can be done. He owed her her pity, his pity, his sympathy. He owed her. He didn't do it. He wouldn't confront that either because that was an uncomfortable situation. He had an uncomfortable situation with Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel. He sinned against Bathsheba and his whole household and her whole household. And Ahithophel was, at, was, was angry with David for what he did, and he never went to Ahithophel and said, I've sinned against you. I've made problems within your home. I've blown it up. What can I do to restore it? He never did. He had Absalom. Absalom was resentful of his father because he wouldn't deal with the, with the rape of his sister Tamar. David did nothing. And all of these people ended up betraying him. And all of these people ended up doing it because David wouldn't confront the issues. He, and he himself seethed with one Joab. He burned with resentment towards Joab and everybody else burned with resentment towards him, towards him because he wouldn't confront the issue. Ready? Okay, hold the chair. Scripture commands confrontation. And all of you that like confrontation go, yeah. And all of you, us that hate confrontation go, ah. Oh. Scripture commands confrontation. It commands it. Jesus had no issue confronting. He confronted everywhere he went. Boom, 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 boom. One thing you say about the Lord, he never avoided the issue. You have to deal with the issue. The purpose of the confrontation is not to prove yourself right. The purpose of the confrontation is to bring resolution. You understand that? It's not about you being right. I'm going to confront this person and show them that I'm right and they're wrong. Well, the whole foundation of your confrontation is wrong because the issue of bringing a confrontation is not you're right, they're wrong. The issue of the confrontation is to bring resolution, to re resolve the issue. I hated confrontation. I still do. I've hated it. And I've learned how to do it without. Next slide. I've learned, I've learned the value of it. I've learned to do it. I'm very slow with confrontation. I am. But I do it. I do it. I'll take a few extra days, which drives some people crazy that are a little bit more direct than I am, you know. And you know, some of you are direct. You get there way quicker. Me, I gotta marinate on it a little bit, so that I make sure I handle myself correctly, <laughs> or at least as best as I can. We're to handle. We're to handle confrontation with maturity and hum humility. We're to make the issue known. So you've been hurt. You've been wounded. Anybody here been hurt and wounded? This is what we do in churches. We get hurt and we get wounded and we run away. That's what we do. Rather than confronting the person or confronting the problem. We get hurt and we get wounded. You have to go, look, you hurt me. You wounded me. And you're saying, well, what if they blow up in my face? If they blow up in your face, all that's doing is showing you that they're a screwed up person. And it should actually make it easier to forgive you. Well, now I know why you did that, because you're just screwed up. I can forgive the crazy, you know. But a lot of times you go to the person and say, look, the way you talked to me, the way you handled yourself there, I found to be disrespectful. So you make the issue known. You ask for clarification. Maybe I'm not understanding this. Can you explain to me what your intention was there or why you did it? This is, I'm giving you the hybrid way, right? And they may look at you and they go, oh, I had a horrible week. I'm so sorry. I was just really in a bad mood and I'm sorry I took it out on you. You understand? There it is. You make the issue known, but you don't go, oh, 
that person, he just never talks to me. He never, you know, the way he talked to me, and you just get mad, you run away. Then you ask for clarification, and then you seek, re you seek resolution. If you're the offended party, what will restore it? This is Matthew 18. If you're offended, go to the person, right? It tells you, the offended one, to go to the one who offended you. It doesn't tell the offended person, the offender, to go to you. You've been offended, you go to them. And if they act like an idiot, then bring another person. And if they still act like an idiot, and it's a really big deal, and you Christians, then bring the, bring the elders or bring the pastor. And if they still act like an idiot in light of all of that, then you're to treat them as if they were an unbeliever. They're just immature and unlearned. That's the process. But we're not to leave divisions among us. We're to talk about, even in a home, and a family, it's all of this stuff. And what you need to know in here is just this, perception is reality. So when you're dealing with a confrontation, you have to realize that just because you didn't intend to do it isn't the issue. So here's what it looks like. You go to the person, you'll go, the person will come to you and they'll go, um, you really hurt me, I really didn't like the way you talked to me. You talked to me very offensively, and it hurt me. Or you were disrespectful in the way that you talked to me. No, I wasn't. No, you, you were really disrespectful in the way that you talked to me. No, I wasn't. So this person is dealing with it from perception. This person is dealing with it from intent. Intent means nothing. Perception is the reality. How the, this is hard, but this is truth. How the person perceived you is what needs to be dealt with. So if you came across like an idiot, or you, whatever it is that you did, and they perceived you that way, and they were offended by that, and they made that known to you, your responsibility is to go to them, and, and, and your responsibility is not to, um, your responsibility is to, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. They're waving, she's waving the communion tray at me. So, <laughs> communion, we have communion, I got it. So, <laughs> uh, so your responsibility is to go to the person and talk to the person, and your responsibility is to understand it from their perception. Their perception is the reality. And this is why, this is why a lot of conflicts go unresolved. I, you did this to me. No, I didn't. You did this to me. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Perception and intent. So you have to set your intent aside, and you have to take it for, I can see how you understand, you could perceive it that way, that was not my intent, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time, that's how it works. All right, so uh, here's some homework, and we'll take communion. You want homework, anybody want homework? Nah? So pick an area of your life where there are patterns. So look at your life as a whole. Where are the barriers? Pick an area of your life where there's a barrier, where there's a pattern. Okay? Then I want you, what I want you to do is I want you to examine it in light of Scripture. So if you look at your finances and you're like, I'm broke all the time. Why is that? Or I have these problems in my faith. Or I have this problem believing for my future. Whatever it may be, pick one of them. Faith, family, future, friendships, or finances. Those are simple ways to understand it. it pick one of them and see where, where, where there's an issue and then examine that in light of Scripture. Does that area reflect what God's intent is? And if it doesn't, then begin to explore why. Then also, here's the last one. Are there any conversations you've been avoiding having? Is there anybody you need to talk to? Is there anything you need to say to somebody that you really don't want to say? Is there an issue that you need to resolve? Are there any unresolved issues, right? So what I would say to, like, some people who love confrontation and they want confront, they just, just got to get in there and get it done all the time, you need to tool it down a little bit. And those that are avoiding the confrontation, you need to probably tool it up a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? But we're to bring each other into this place of resolve. All right? Okay. Did you get anything out of that? Yes. All right, so we're going to take communion. So if Jody would uh, come and play, since you are here, if you would, that's awesome. I know you would. I just saw that.